0: Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, com, and on the NSN app around the world. And it's appropriate to talked to this morning, a world traveler, William Daroff, CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, one of the longest titles, obviously, in both uh, sports and Jewish world and in politics. William, welcome back to SPIN Class.
1: Thank you very much, Michael. It's great to be back here with you.
0: So, uh, William, two years on, I know, COVID years, et cetera, but you've also had your, I think, your first of those Big President's Conference missions in Israel, which usually takes place over the course of two, three, four weeks. It's kind of you spend forever there, kind of getting to know the lay of the land, also bringing the major American Jewish leadership over there. So where do things stand right now in 2022, I guess vis-a-vis the Israeli government, vis-a-vis war in Europe, which is kind of a shockingly sobering statement for all of us to even say. I guess foreign policy is now back on the front burner for a lot of people, particularly as it affects our buying power, inflation, gas prices, et cetera. Tell us what's going on from the uh, Jewish hierarchy's perspective.
1: Well, thank you again, Michael, for having me back on the show. We had our mission in late February where we brought leaders of the American Jewish community to Israel The uh, last time we had been there was in February of 2020, uh, right when I started and right before Corona hit. And so we were the very last national leadership mission to come to Israel before the pandemic. And we are the very first national leadership mission to come back as, God willing, the pandemic is waning. And so it uh, is a much different Israel, uh, a much different prime minister. Uh, We were there uh, during one of the many elections uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, And when we came back last month, we were there uh, with a new prime minister, with a new government, with a new coalition. And it was really an opportunity for us to reintroduce ourselves and American Jewry to the Israeli governmental, political, military and civic realm. Uh, We had uh, really an amazing time where we met with Prime Minister Bennett and we met with opposition leader Netanyahu, but also Foreign Minister uh, Lapid and Defense Minister Gantz. Uh, And really across the board, the entire uh, spectrum, uh, including uh, Mansour Abbas, the leader of the Islamist Ram Party, uh, which is the first uh, Arab party to be uh, in the ruling coalition. And so we talked across the board about issues of concern to the Jewish community and issues of concern to Israel as we reintroduced ourselves and they reintroduced themselves to us. The sort of key issue that kept coming up virtually in every meeting was Iran uh, and concern about a forthcoming Iran deal. Uh, as well as issues about the uh, diaspora-Israeli uh, relations and about um, uh, other issues uh, of key concern. But uh, as I mentioned, uh, Iran, Iran, Iran pretty much came up in every meeting.
0: Okay, so that anticipates, of course, my, I guess, a question I wanted to ask, and because you focus Israel and their neighbors, and you've been to many of the countries in question, particularly those that have recently made peace uh, with Israel or those that have come to terms, if you will, with Israel's existence. Uh, but one of the things I think around the Iran discussion has been, I, in my opinion, underreported, was that President Biden called the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, respectively, and they declined to speak to them. So that's Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, as well as Mohammed bin Zayed of the UAE. Uh, I guess it's expressing both their frustration with perhaps some aspects of the Biden administration uh, rhetoric, but also I think probably possibly, and I'll let you address this, more substantively with regard to their potential for a new Iran deal?
1: So uh, those were media reports. And my understanding is since there have been conversations and Secretary Blinken uh, is headed to the region and to the Gulf um, shortly, uh, and hopefully uh, those uh, disagreements will be worked through. Uh, But yes, the media reports were that both MBS and MBZ, as they were affectionately known, uh, would not take those phone calls that were mostly to be focused on the Ukraine crisis and on oil. Uh, and it is uh, absolutely the Iran deal is a part of it. I think that uh, the American uh, reticence to deal with the Saudis and particularly with MBS in the wake of the Khashoggi murder uh, are a piece of it. Um, but uh, when we come to Realpolitik, as we see uh, with this Ukraine crisis where America needs our friends to be our friends. A lot of these issues uh, come to the fore and get pushed through. There is great concern throughout the region uh, with a with the leaks that have come out about what the Iran deal looks like. It may be a deal that is neither longer nor stronger nor broader uh, as was initially promised by the Biden administration. A deal that is totally focused on the nuclear file, not on ballistic missiles, not on malevolent bla- behavior across uh, the world and across the region, including support for terrorist organizations in Lebanon, Gaza, and Yemen, not on uh, human rights uh, or on a slew of other issues where the Iranians are, uh, are not good partners in, in, any, uh, in any sense of the word, as well as, according to media reports, literally um, hundreds of billions of dollars flowing uh, to the Iranian regime and reports of the IRGC, the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard, being shifted off of our foreign terrorist uh, organization list. So it seems like, from the press reports, that America is uh, searching and searching and searching for a deal at any cost. Uh, There's another component to this, which has come up in the news just in the last two weeks, which is the role that Russia has. Russia will be, according to press reports, paid to take the enriched uranium and spent fuel from Iran, and Russia will, according to press reports, be the final arbiter of whether the West is in compliance with the deal, and this is at a time when With our left hand, America, rightfully, along with the rest of the world, is condemning uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russians for their aggression in in Ukraine. With our right hand, we're looking at them to be the the deal makers and the deal helpers here and have apparently acceded to Russian requests to be relieved from any sort of sanctions as it relates to their dealings with Iran. And this is an issue that is not just about Israel. It's an issue, as you mentioned, about the entire Gulf, uh, about these Sunni states that see Iran as being the threat that they are. Iran has attacked uh, Saudi uh, facilities. Uh, it has attacked UAE facilities. It has attacked, as recently as just a few weeks ago, uh, American uh, facilities and American uh, consulate in Erbil. Uh, and, and America seems uh, feckless as it relates to it. Uh, I am uh, deeply concerned about what the deal might look like on the one hand. On the other hand, neither of us are sitting around the table in Vienna, so we don't know precisely what the deal will look like. But it's something that is a great concern for sure to our Israeli uh, governmental friends as well as to those around the region.
0: I guess my question as an American sitting here, an American Jew, pro-Israel Jew, sitting here is, why? Why this relentless push to make a deal with Don't don't we learn something from the way Russia is acting in Ukraine, that there are bad actors out there, that there are people out there who can't be trusted? and if I had to put them out there in the, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't, okay, I don't think every list is going to have Iran as the number one, but every list is going to have Iran in the top three. I mean, it's going to be North Korea, Russia, and Iran in some way, in that order. I mean, where is this obsession with making a deal with Iran coming from within the administration?
1: Uh, I That's think there are my number characterization. F- I just sure. No, I think there are a number of factors. One is that Uh, anything Donald Trump uh, was for, they're against, and vice versa. And that's something that is not just a Biden thing, but it's a Trump thing. It was a Bush thing. It was an Obama thing. You sort of go in and you're elected with a new mandate to do the opposite of what your predecessor did when there's a change of party. So that's something that's out there. Secondly, uh, there's not a wonderful plan B here. There are really bad choices to stop Iran from developing a nuclear capacity. There is uh, intense sanctions. There is obviously something, uh, God forbid, militarily kinetic uh, by the US, by NATO, by Israel, by somebody. Um, there is the diplomatic uh, effort here that is undertaken. And so uh, I, I do believe the president is sincere in his wish to try to figure out uh, how to deal with the best of a number of bad options. My view though is again, again according to the press reports, that the, the bad option that he's picking is worse than uh, other options. That a, in my view, a bad, view, a bad deal Uh, is worse than no deal at all. But I do believe that they're sincere about this. That being said, as we sit here now, they have not come to an agreement on a deal. Uh, News reports show that there is uh, still uh, some area of disagreement between uh, the U.S. and the Iranians. And so uh, perhaps there won't be a deal because the line in the sand that the administration has drawn is one uh, that uh, they're not willing to quite cross yet. That being said, each time along the line, according to news reports, uh, as the U.S. has come forward with a deal, the Iranians have moved the goalposts. They have sought more and more from the West in order to achieve a deal. Um, and so I'm you know, hesitant to say that there won't be a deal, hesitant to say there will be a deal, uh, but I believe that it's looking at the situation that, that, um, that you know, we have a choice between many, many bad options. That being said, I think you are absolutely right about the Russian uh, illusion, and that is the absolute... Solitary key reason that the U.S. is likely and NATO is likely going to sit by while Kyiv and other cities in Ukraine end up looking like Dresden is because Putin has nuclear weapons. Um, That is something that makes it so that we in the West, rightfully, arguably, uh, do not want to expand this conflict by taking it outside the borders of Ukraine because of the risk of nuclear weapons, tactical nukes or something uh, more uh, deadly and dreadful than that. So imagine what would happen if the Iranians had a nuclear capacity, what, how the West would also then not want to push the button as Iranians were uh, continuing with their expansionistic uh, efforts. Uh, imagine uh, Israel and, and whether Israel, and I am absolutely confident that America has Israel's back, but you add in a nuclear, a nuclear component here with Iran, and absolutely changes the dynamic. And we can look not just at Putin, but look at North Korea. Uh, North Korea is a, a country that uh, you know its GDP is less than... Uh, Uh, than Nassau County, New York's. Yet when they um, jump, uh, we all ask, uh, how high are you jumping, sir? Because of the potential of of having nukes. And there've been ballistic missile tests just in this last week as the North Korean dictator is apparently upset that nobody's paying attention to him because of the conflict elsewhere. So it's absolutely essential that we stop Iran from developing a nuclear capacity. It is my view based on these nuclear, uh, the leaks from the nuclear talks in Vienna that the path that we're going on with JCPOA 2.0 will not make that less likely.
0: Okay, let's talk about Israel for a second. The Israeli government, I think many of people in our listenership, did not expect this type of staying power from this uh, Motley coalition and I, I don't mean that in a bad way. It just is. It's the most unusual coalition, clearly, in Israel's not-so-long history. But it's kind of a coalition that nobody ever expected to come together. And once they came together, certainly never expected them to survive. But it's it's there. Uh, there is an expectation, I guess, now that they've gotten through certain hurdles, that they're going to make it to the transition of prime ministership because uh, I think polls certainly make it in everybody's interest to keep the coalition together, although maybe you'll address that as well. Uh, So uh, where, you know, how is Israel doing? How is Israel's government doing? Uh, This mediation of Russia, I mean, where did that come from? The Russia-Ukraine conference. uh,
1: Right, I think to start off with, I'll just say that, uh, that the conference of presidents will deal with Whichever government uh, is elected of by course, the people, of course, of course, goes without in,
0: saying. I should have I should have preambled that.
1: Right, whether it's in Israel or America, uh, we we go with the flow, and uh, and, and that's the case. So um, this government is one uh, some have called the kaleidoscope government because it uh, it really reflects so many different pieces of Israeli civil society, from uh, the right wing Yamina to the left wing Meretz, and as I mentioned before, the Islamist Ram Party, uh, and kind of everything in between. Uh, for the most part, it is uh, one that uh, I think you bring up uh, rightly the poll issue, which is that with very few exceptions, um, the members of this coalition would not be in the next government uh, were there to be an election today. Um, that, uh, and so to some extent, they stick together because it's a suicide pact, um, that none of them will be better off. Uh, none of them will have the ministries. None of them will be able to do uh, the work that they want to do uh, were the government to collapse. Uh, that being said, the government was put together really on a domestic agenda. It was put together an agenda of not having election after election after election and focusing on some key issues that where there was widespread agreement uh, on the domestic uh, level. Uh, and what's been interesting is that while that was the focus of the election and the focus of where the government was going to come in, foreign policy continues to be a key component in what the government is being fa- forced to deal with, whether it's the Abraham Accords and... The really wonderful integration and engagement uh, with Gulf states and God willing with uh, some other Arab and Muslim states uh, not too far down the road uh, whether it is um, dealing with the Iran deal whether it is dealing with the Ukraine crisis uh, this government Prime Minister Bennett have been front and center I think it's interesting you point out the mediation role that Prime Minister Bennett is engaged in with Putin and Zelensky with President Zelensky and President Putin uh it is uh we'll see what happens with it just in the last few days the prime minister had another two-hour discussion with putin uh, and has had a number of conversations with zelensky as well and i think it's interesting to note on a couple levels one level being that uh just about a month ago amnesty international put out a report uh that called for the international uh, ostr- ostracizing of, of israel and to uh, isolate Israel uh, because of what uh, Amnesty uh, calls the, the, the canard of it being an apartheid state. Um, so on the one hand, that's where much of the uh, part of the international community is. On the other hand, you can count with literally two fingers the number of countries that have been involved in trying to mediate this dispute, the other being Turkey uh, with Erdogan. Uh, and so Israel is very much punching above its weight, uh, engaged in trying to mediate the greatest humanitarian conflict Uh, that the world has known in in many decades. Uh, And I think it shows the crucial role that Israel has in the the body politic of of the world, uh, where Israel has positive relationships. It's the only democratic country that has positive relationships with both Ukraine and Russia. Uh, And it's a force for good. Uh, It's a force for good there and it's a force for good around the world. So it is a um, a government that, uh, as you said, was totally not uh, predictable. It's one that uh, many did not think would last very long. Uh, But it's one that seems to have staying power in the Knesset. Uh, And I agree with you that until the the switch uh, about halfway through when Foreign Minister Lapid will become uh, the prime minister, I think the government is pretty stable. We'll see what happens then. I don't know as we sit here today um, that the the circumstances will be much different. uh, And so I would not bet against Lapid becoming prime minister. Uh, On the other hand, it's politics and it's Israeli politics and uh, and who knows uh, how these things will play out.
0: Sure. Well... One thing that many in the Orthodox community in particular will, you know, have this idea about how uh well, I, they have a different conception of how the Jewish establishment deals with, with Israel and that's particularly I guess other religious pluralism type issues, right? Where there's a big campaign with regard to the integration or not integrating the the Kotel Plaza for non-Orthodox streams of Judaism, 150,000 signatures, delegation went to Israel. Uh, there is definitely this feeling also with uh, regard to Orthodox groups taking a greater role, the Jewish Agency and, as, uh, and the World Zionist Organization. So there seems to be a new feeling amongst the Orthodox community that they are more involved or engaged on some of these issues. Uh, they probably don't get a perspective, or at least I don't. I, many people that I speak to don't get the perspective of the other side. Uh, that they're, you know, where does that, what does that do to other Jews and their diaspora relations? I'm sure that's a big part of your conference and your constituency. Uh, so, you know, tell us, give us an update from that perspective a little bit on on where, you know, where are those issues and how do they play with regard to Israeli politics, the coalition, etc.
1: So um, the conference does not get involved in issues of religion and state. Uh, we had, as our chair, uh, 30, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, Rabbi Schindler, who was the head of the reform movement, and as such, we've taken on the Schindler Doctrine uh, such that uh, we do not engage in those issues. We are one of the very few bodies where the Orthodox reform and the conservatives sit together. And Rabbi Schindler, rightfully and smartly, uh, looking at Shalom Bayit, uh, decided to not get us involved in that mess. I'll I'll say that uh, where we do get involved is trying to ensure that there are open lines of communication that as the government and others uh, engage in these issues they do not make the issue worse uh, they do not uh, try to uh, use them as wedge issues and that they understand uh, where American Jewry uh, stands on these issues and American Jewry as you well know is in you know ask ten Jews you get eleven different opinions. We're in many different places on this and what uh, I push for is, is compassion, uh, is uh, listening, uh, and trying to find some sort of middle ground. But as far as the, the nuts and bolts of it, uh, the conference does not get engaged in that piece of it.
0: Okay, I tried. Let's talk about American politics for a second and vis-a-vis Israel. And first, I want let's talk about this perception that anti-Semitism continues to creep up on the left and the right. And it's something that is very... Unnerving to many American Jews, uh, and even to the point that you know some of us uh, face violence—not necessarily political violence—but people face violence in the street. Uh, but the political rhetoric, I think, is something that many feel. Uh, you mentioned the Amnesty International report. I think that's just this, just an absolute canard. Uh, you know, really, if you even if you read it, it's so insane. And then you have one of the representatives of Amnesty International giving a talk to a Jewish organization, or to, I guess actually to the Jewish Democratic Council, or whatever, De- Women's Democratic Council, I'm not sure exactly what it was, saying that Israel should not exist as a Jewish state. So we kind of know where they stand. Uh, is this problem, where do you see this problem going, uh, I guess, from your perspective? You've been around Washington a really long time. You're one of the old wise men, or not so old, but one of the wise men of Washington, particularly when it comes to the Jewish community. Where, where do we see this going?
1: Not so old, because I started when I was a a youngster, just like you, Michael. Um, So uh, it is, uh, I think you described it pretty well. Um, And I think what's important is to call out anti-Semitism of the left, anti-Semitism of the right, uh, and Islamist, uh, radical Islamist anti-Semitism as well. And I think what's doubly important is for people in each of those camps to call out anti-Semitism in their own camps. It's very easy for someone on the right to point their finger uh, at, uh, at the squad and say, look how terrible they are. And it's very easy for people on the left to point their finger at, uh, at Charlottesville and, and, and the like and say, look look how awful they are. What is much more important is for people uh, to really be able to look inward and engage with folks who are on our, their own side of the barricades. And that's something that, uh, that we push a great deal. I think that uh, the issue of anti-Semitism is one that is real. Uh, it's one that is palpable, uh, it's one that is, can be soft or can be hard, it can uh, manifest itself in the BDS movement, it can manifest itself uh, across the board. And one thing that we endeavor to do and have been successful in doing is to push the IRA definition, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which is a definition that was, is internationally accepted. It is the, uh, the, uh, the most internationally accepted definition of anti-Semitism developed by diplomats, uh, mostly in Western Europe. Uh, And has been adopted by over 30 countries across the United States and literally uh, over a thousand other NGOs, schools, uh, associations, uh, colleges, sports teams and the like. And among the things that is in a part of that definition is that denying the Jewish people the right of self-determination, denying the right of Israel to exist is a key indicator of anti-Semitism. It doesn't mean that everybody who says... Israel shouldn't exist as an anti-Semite, but it raises a big flag and a big flare up there and is an indicative of this. And it's something that uh, I think is incredibly noteworthy and noteworthy that it has such widespread approval. It's something that the Biden administration uh, at the State Department has adopted and has engaged with and something that it pushes other countries uh, to push forward with. The Trump administration similarly did an executive order uh, on IRA and IRA goes back all the way uh, to, uh, really to Colin Powell when he was Secretary of State but then more forcefully when Secretary Clinton, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. So it's a bipartisan definition that I think is important to, to look at because in order to combat something, you have to be able to define it. Uh, and anti Semitism is something that, uh, again, we need to focus on. And I think as a community, uh, we're in one place on it. And, uh, and it is something that, uh, you know, with the, the way that the world is at the moment, where we have increased nationalism, where we have uh, increased. Um, uh, uh divisiveness uh, where people are, are very much in a Fox News world or an MSNBC world and nothing in between uh, that we need to ensure that as those narratives are out there that we keep our eye on the ball as it relates to anti-Semitism wherever it rears its ugly head.
0: Okay, last question for you, William and I thank you for being so generous with your time is anything what is the most unexpected? thing that you have had on this job uh, now two years. Uh, Tell us what has surprised you about the job of being the CEO of the Conference of Presidents?
1: Well, I uh, have to think about that as I answer the question. Uh, I just came back, as you know, from Poland uh, and was there on the border between Poland and Ukraine and saw the amazing work of Jewish and Israeli uh, social service agencies and NGOs, as well as the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, helping jews and non-jews alike as they deal with this crisis and i think seeing the uh really the remarkable work uh, of those agencies and of the polish people as they deal with this crisis is something that i will remember uh for a long time uh, i think that uh beyond that uh, on a bigger picture uh is that uh you know the conference of Presidents has 53 member organizations and we span from zoa on the right to americans for peace now on the left uh, the reform movement, the conservative movement, the orthodox movement, the mainstream groups like the American Jewish Committee and APAC and the Jewish Federations and JNF and ADL. I'm not going to keep listing them or I'll get in trouble, but I, I love all of them, mostly. Uh, Equally. And, and Exactly. But it is the fact that, uh, despite the fact that uh, you'll never see a headline in the fore that says Jewish organizations agree, um, that for the most part on 70, 80, 70 to 80 percent of issues, we are in one place. Uh, we are in one place as a community. For sure, there are uh, wedgie uh, uh, third rail issues that we disagree on, but the vast majority of the issues that we engage on are ones where we're in the same place. For instance, the IRA definition, 51 of the 53 organizations adopted it. Uh, There is great consensus in the community, and something that I really enjoy doing is helping to find that consensus, to build it, uh, and to focus on those areas of agreement, because as a one community, focused in one direction, we can be much stronger, where two plus two will equal five, or we can take the great uh, majesty of Judaism, the great uh, focus of our people, uh, and point it in one direction and come out with successful
0: conclusions. William Darroff, CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, just back from the Poland-Ukraine border before that for a long-duration trip to Israel. Thank you so much for sharing your insight internationally, domestically, and within the state of Israel.
1: My pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. I'm a longtime listener uh, of your show and look forward to uh, uh, having you continue to uh, expand our horizons.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week here on Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.